Welcome to the Free Retiree Show. My name is Lee Michael Murphy. I've been in wealth management for the last 10 years right in the heart of the Silicon Valley. People have always asked me, how do I achieve financial independence? And while the financial world wants you to believe it's as simple as investing your money, I'm here to tell you it's a small piece of the puzzle. I've seen four consistent factors in the people that have achieved financial independence. One, they excel in their career. Two, they manage their money properly. Three, they're able to avoid devastating financial mistakes. They can see through the BS. And lastly, they understand they need to learn from the best, the people that have achieved success in their career and their finances. Join us on our journey as we learn how to become free retirees. Welcome in, boys and girls, to another episode of the Free Retiree Show. I'm your host, wealth manager, Lee Michael Murphy, and I'm alongside my main man, career advisor, Sergio Patterson. What is up, everyone? And we are also alongside Silicon Valley's favorite attorney, Matthew McElroy. What's going on? Welcome into a career advancement episode of the Free Retiree Show. So for today, we're going to be talking about how teams and leaders can help improve resilience during such a difficult and rare time in human history. Right now, I think all of us, we're seeing other coworkers and people we know in corporate America struggling. So Serge, Matt, what sort of things have you seen in terms of people in the workplace having troubles with being resilient and lack of motivation? Well, I don't think people are in the workplace anymore. They're at home now. <laughs> the virtual workplace. The vir- <laughs> Let's talk about the virtual workplace. Yeah, I mean, I've been home for almost a year. I think they sent us home like March of last year. So I think people are struggling to stay motivated. This is my office in here right now, but I can just go out there and like hit my pantry up, go (laughs) chill on the couch. There's so many variables. If you have kids, that's a whole nother thing. And then people are stressed. There's anxiety. There's just so much going on. So I'm excited to have Rachel on because I think this is a topic that a lot of people care about and need to hear about right now. Maddie, what are you seeing? I think it's a huge topic for probably every industry right now, but especially lawyers. I mean, you have to be resilient. You have to have thick skin. And I'm really excited to hear what she has to say. Me too. Right now we're working in a time where so many people are working from home. There's less human interaction. Every day from a lot of people that I've heard from is it feels like it's Groundhog Day, right? Every day feels the same. So where's your motivation to keep pushing yourself and excelling in your career? I mean, it's hard enough to do that and fight maybe feelings of loneliness and depression at the same time. So this is a really challenging time. And so we are honored to be interviewing the CEO of Unmuted, Rachel Drunkenmiller. Now, Rachel is a world-renowned speaker, author, and she's on a mission to help transform the workplace by making people more resilient and connected and making more compassionate leaders and teams. She's also recognized as the number one health promotion professional in the U.S. by the Wellness Council of America, and she's a 40 under 40 game changer by Workforce Magazine. And she's a phenomenal speaker. I've watched her online and I've watched her before I even talked to her and I was like, man, this would be amazing to get her on our show. So you're in for a treat. We're going to go to a quick break, but before we do so, make sure you like our show, share us. And if you have questions, financial related, career related, legal related, and even a question for Rachel, send them to ask at thefreeretiree.com. We're going to take a quick break, but when we're back, we're going to be sitting down with Rachel Drunkenmiller. Welcome back into the Free Retiree Show. We're sitting down with Rachel Drunkenmiller. Listeners, Rachel has done over 100 virtual meetings in 2020. She is sitting down with companies including Deloitte, Under Armour, the National Wellness Institute, Citizens Bank, University of Delaware, the American Heart Association, (laughs) and all those peril in comparison to the Free Retiree Show. Rachel, thank (laughs) thank you for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. I got to the end of a busy week, had some really awesome things that happened this week and just coming out of a therapy session this morning. So excited to be here with y'all today. We are delighted to have you. I've heard a lot about your backstory. I've seen you speak on the biggest stages. You do a great job talking about resilience. And also I recently heard that you were involved in a car crash. You were hit by a car. So that involves, I imagine, a ton of resilience. Can you give us a little bit of insight into how you're doing from the car crash and what that was like? 
Yeah. So um, about six weeks into COVID, you know, when everyone already felt like they'd been knocked down and I had been knocked down because like as a speaker, live events basically went poof and they disappeared. And so I lost about 80% of my work in a matter of weeks. And I was only seven months into starting my business, by the way, (laughs) (laughs) after 13 years at the same company in a very stable job. And so I had a choice for me. It was like, all right, figure it out or figure it out. Like the choice to like go back or do something else that was not an option. I was like, I'm going to figure this out. So I was feeling really good. I was about six weeks into having done that, starting to build some momentum. And then my husband and I went out on a run Sunday afternoon in May. And we were crossing an intersection and he had run across the street ahead of me and the light was red and we had a solid cross signal, all the things that you're supposed to observe before you cross the street. And there was a Chevy Silverado pickup truck in the right-hand turn lane that for whatever reason that day was not paying attention to the same traffic rules and took a right-hand turn right as I was running across the front of his car. So yeah, I ended up in the middle of the intersection screaming. It's like slow motion. It happened of like, oh my gosh, I've been hit by a car. <laughs> like <laughs> That's got to suck so bad. As I was falling, I was like realizing in very slow motion what happened. Yeah. So I went to the hospital and I ended up getting diagnosed with a compression fracture in my back and it was a lot of pain and COVID. My husband couldn't be with me. I didn't even have my phone because we don't run with our phone. So I'm like in a trauma room with blinking lights for like nine hours with just myself and my thoughts. And I remember laying in that, in the gurney between tears and anger and frustration and fear and all the things you would feel in that situation, thinking to myself, I don't know, I think speakers or writers do this weird thing where we try to make spiritually bypass and make meaning out of everything. But I was like, there's something here <laughs> about rising up when you get knocked down. Like, I'm going to use this. Like, I remember thinking yeah. that in the hospital. Like, While you were on the gurney? Yeah. Oh, What's wow. Compression right? fracture? You are a strong human being. <laughs> Only thoughts that go through my mind is like, I'm going to call my attorney, Matt McElroy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was like, did you get an attorney? That's what I was saying this whole time. <laughs> if not, Matt wants a piece of that. <laughs> Thank goodness. Yes, we have a fantastic attorney that we're working with on this one. <laughs> uh, that's good. That's good. So, gosh, how challenging was that for you mentally? Obviously, you had a stellar attitude after being plowed by a Chevy Silverado. <laughs> but days after, how was your mental state and how did you deal with it? Well, it was really, I think initially some of the shock of it, like I was in so much pain. I was in a back brace for two months and I couldn't bend, lift or twist, which you don't realize how much you bend, lift or twist every day until you can't. And I couldn't really do that for four months until I was cleared that the fracture had stabilized, that I was able to start moving again in like August. So I was already speaking about hope and resilience before the accident because my area of expertise is in well-being, And I've been talking about beating burnout for the past four years since I burned out (laughs) and got mono. I was already leading workshops around how do we build hope and resilience in the midst of uncertainty. And then I got hit by a pickup truck. This happened on a Sunday. I had a gig that Tuesday with a group of HR professionals. And I was like, well, they told me to stand. They told me to like, not just get used to laying down all the time. Cause that would make recovery harder. I'm in embrace. I'm stabilized. can take lots of extra strength Tylenol <laughs> and I can do it. So that Tuesday morning I was doing a speaking engagement to a group of HR professionals about how we find hope and resilience in the midst of uncertainty. <laughs> So that's savage. Well, it's also slightly crazy because I should have rested. I should have been giving myself permission to rest that week, but I felt very purposeful. I felt like even more purposeful than I'd felt before. Cause I was like, if I can give this message in the midst of this situation where I really did struggle mentally, I mean, I had to get up at four o'clock in the morning with excruciating muscle spasms in my back for the first month that just wake me up at four o'clock every day. And I'd have to call for my husband. And I was sleeping in a recliner in my living room because I couldn't comfortably sleep in a bed for two months. And He'd have to come take me to the shower because the only thing that would alleviate the pain and the spasms was just being under warm water. And I had to still show up, often brought in as the person to bring energy (laughs) and and hope and engagement and excitement. And here I am in like a tremendous amount of pain. (laughs) It was hard, but it gave me a sense of purpose to focus on other than my pain. Well, yeah, I think you doing that shows that you're legit, like you're kind of walking Definitely walking walk the, talk, the walk or walking the walk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Whatever that analogy is. It's like the definition of resilience. <laughs> <laughs> when you get knocked people are like, like ever felt like you got hit by a truck. I'm like, actually. <laughs> oh, wow. Like, you know, zero stars would not recommend, but yeah. Truck. <laughs> so Rachel pivoting back to the conversation that we're having today, resilience, resilience in the workplace. It's a tough time. I think to have leaders and organizations show resilience during normal times is challenging. Fair enough, I think. 
-hmm. I think it's extremely difficult when you have lack of human interaction, human connection, mm -hmm. people living with different circumstances where we're trying to shelter in place, avoid human contact, we're scared. How do we get that resilience as an organization, as an individual? What steps should people take? The first thing that comes up for me is thinking about how we define resilience is that it's this internal capacity that can be developed that can essentially help us rise up when we face adversity. So it's a capacity. It's something we have to intentionally build. So a lot of people, and we've all had situations like this, where we go through something difficult and it's like Groundhog Day, right? And you don't learn anything from it. We go through something difficult and then you go through it again and you go through it again until like eventually, hopefully you learn something from it. Resilience develops when we're able to sit with whatever's going on that's adverse and to reflect on it and to make meaning out of it and to potentially even see what potential good might be in it, or to learn to lean on other people. Part of building resilience, it's this internal capacity that's developed, but it also can be developed by us reaching out to other people and realizing we don't have to do this alone. I think what's happening right now is a lot of people feel alone in whatever their struggle is. And so they're trying to stand up by themselves instead of potentially leaning on somebody else or asking someone else to take their hand and pick them up because there's a shame around everyone's struggling right now. So I don't want to burden anybody. I don't want to be a bother. My situation's not, we do comparative suffering. My situation's not as bad as theirs. So I shouldn't be complaining. What people don't realize is that what they've been going through is they've been going through a grieving process and haven't acknowledged it. So the grief process with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross starts with shock. Like, wait, what? I mean, we've all had that experience in the past year, right? Of like, wait, 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 what's happening? And then we go to a place of denial of like, no, 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 this is a nightmare, right? This isn't actually, we're not actually locked down. We can't actually not leave our houses. And then we go to a place of frustration where it starts to really sink in that, oh, this is happening. And we feel angry when we get to that place. And then kind of the lowest point of this roller coaster curve is depression, where we have low energy, low mood, a lack of motivation. And when we're in that place, it's like we kick ourselves while we're already down. And we're like, ah, get it together. Why haven't you done more with this time? You're lazy. I hear it all that people are we're so hard on ourselves. Why haven't you written your next book or launched your podcast or grown your business exponentially? We don't recognize that like, that's a grieving process. That depression, that sadness is a place that a lot of us just want to avoid because it sucks to feel that way. And instead of letting ourselves experience the fullness of that process of acknowledging when we're angry, I was angry. I went through all of that. I was in denial. Oh my gosh. If I'd left my house five minutes later, this car wouldn't have been there. Oh, if we'd gone a different route, right? How many times have we done that in the past year with anything? Oh, if only this hadn't happened then. And we try to like bargain and rationalize things. And part of what we need to do, part of building resilience is accepting instead of resisting what is. It's not saying I like it. I'm not like, I'm so glad I got hit by a pickup truck. No, I would prefer to have total mobility and not be limited and not be in physical therapy 10 months later, but I am. And so part of the reason I think people have struggled being resilient is because one, we're not willing to let ourselves go through the fullness of that grieving process, give ourselves permission to feel and get help from perhaps a therapist or a spiritual advisor or somebody else who can guide you through that and invite you to bring out whatever is in you instead of suppressing, suppress, 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 silence, mute, right? We're muting our pain. We're muting all of that. So we end up feeling more and more alone. If we can let ourselves go through that grief process, which is not easy. If we can get the support and the help we need by reaching out to people in our lives that we trust or someone who's trained in how to navigate this, if we can begin to say to ourselves, okay, I may not like what is happening right now, but resistance takes a tremendous amount of energy. So I'm going to choose to accept it and then say, okay, now what? Hope is really rooted in a sense of agency, a sense of I can control something about my future. And when we feel a sense of hope of, oh, I can control something about my future. I have a sense that I have that agency. That's one of the things that helped me be more resilient. Of like, I was determined I could find healers who could help me. I was determined that I could figure out how to make this work. And a lot of people don't have that same sense. So, I mean, those are a couple of things. There's a lot of other things that contribute to resilience, asking for help, finding any type of gratitude we can and what we're experiencing. And ultimately the final stage of grief is meaning-making. So how do we make meaning? So that's, I'm choosing, I know I do a keynote knockout, I'm still standing, rising up resilience when life knocks you down. For me, that's a way to make meaning of something that has sucked that I would prefer had not happened. 
Yeah, I was thinking acceptance is huge because I think we're going through historic times right now, right? Like mm -hmm. this COVID thing, it's a historic moment in the world. And I don't think we've all done enough time to really accept that. The way we're feeling, it's we've gone through historic event after historic event. I won't get political, but like the last four years have been wild. Mm -hmm. And then we have COVID and then it's like, a lot of this shit is crazy. So I think it's okay to feel this way sometimes. My question to you though, is how do you not get stuck? How do you pick yourself back up? Because mm -hmm. I think a lot of us, we get stuck in this groundhog day. So how do we get out? I know you mentioned therapy. Are there any other like tactics or things you do? Yeah. One of the things that I do, and I do this with groups and organizations, I invite people into sharing stories about resilience with each other. So reflect on a time in the past where you've gone through what was a seemingly insurmountable challenge, something really difficult that you didn't really have a playbook for, and you persevered in the end. Tell a story about that. What happened? How did you show up? What did you learn about yourself or the world or other people? What lessons did you take from that time that you could apply now? So an example of that was four years ago when I burned out and was really sick and got mono, called Epstein-Barr virus is what I had. At that time, I was not very candid or open with people about when I was struggling or having a hard time. I was the, I've got it all together, right? Like this award-winning wellness expert and I don't need anything or any help and I've got it figured out, I'm good. When I went through this experience, I lost my voice for a period of time. I'd sleep 12 hours a night and not feel rested for months. I and mean, I was very, very sick. I had to open up and be honest and say, hey, I can't handle this all. I need help. I need support. I need to change my schedule. I had to advocate for myself in ways that made me really uncomfortable. And a lot of us aren't willing to do that because we're afraid of, oh, well, if I advocate for myself then someone's going to reject me or someone's going to judge me or something like that. And so then we end up not speaking up and asking for what we need. In the midst of that season of recovering, I learned to be honest with people. I sought therapy. I got really connected to a community at my church that I could just be honest with about what my needs were. And they checked in on me and they asked how I was doing. And so I started to be vulnerable about my needs in a way that I was not comfortable doing before. And so because I learned how to ask for help and receive support, it's hard for so many of us to receive, we want to give, give, but we can't receive when somebody wants to give love or support to us. Because I learned to do that in that season, when this season came along and somebody reached out to me the day after the accident and said, Hey, my husband and I want to set up a meal train for you and your husband. My immediate thought was like, we don't need that. We're fine. Like we're financially, like we could support ourselves. My immediate reaction was to reject her offer of support, which a lot of us do, right? When someone offers to help, we're like, I'm good. I'm, it's really fine. I don't need that. Yeah. And instead I said, that would be wonderful. Thank you. Part of this process is learning to receive when someone wants to give instead of excusing it or pushing it away. Another thing is Brene Brown has this concept. I talk about this a lot in the workshops I do. So I have it in front of me all the time called your square squad and your square squad are the people in your life that have been there consistently that have shown up in the past that have perhaps told you what you need to hear, not always what you want to hear. These are people who you've been able to reach out to and you've been struggling or they're ones who've checked in on you and, and maybe it's been a while since that has happened, but they've shown up for you in the past in some capacity. She encourages people to take a one by one inch piece of paper and write those people's names on it and put that in a prominent place. Some people have a list in their phone of this is my square squad and they have all those people grouped under one. So when you have a moment of feeling like the demands that are on you cognitively, emotionally, mentally, professionally exceed your ability to respond, it's a reminder of oh, these people are a resource when I shut down, because when we are in anxiety and fear and frustration to get technical, the prefrontal cortex, the part of our brain that's responsible for executive function, like higher level thinking, problem solving, empathy, it goes offline when we're in a state of fight or flight or fear, what happens is that part of the brain shuts down. And so we can't access the problem solving part of the brain when we're in a state of reactivity, reaching out to another person serves as a proxy. They serve as a secondary prefrontal cortex. And so we can access their cognitive ability in a time where we can access our own. That's a couple of ways. That's I'd love helpful. to hear what you think about Lee, that. Lee, did, did you understand that? that? That's a little bit high level. That's a little bit over our heads for this show. <laughs> 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 but why don't you explain it to me, Sergio? <laughs> <laughs> no, that, no, makes, that, that makes a ton of sense. Yeah. There's an assessment that I have a lot of people take in the workshops I do. I'm working with a law firm right now on that and training their new associates and resetting their mindset and on building resilience and on unmuting themselves. So I'm doing a series, which has been really fun. And I have people take this assessment called the VIA Character Strengths Assessment. VIA stands for Values in Action. 
It was developed in the early 2000s by a group of about 55 social scientists who came together and said, we do a really good job as psychologists talking about how to fix people's problems, but we don't do a very good job talking about how to optimize thriving, like what leads to a flourishing life. We haven't really defined this. And so they started looking back at historical works and philosophical works and religious works and said, well, what are the values and virtues that really contribute most to people who thrive? And they came up with a list of 24 of these values. What I have people do is I have them walk through an exercise where they'll share a story of resilience. They'll take this assessment and then I'll have them say, okay, which of your values showed up in that? Was it perseverance? Was it bravery? Was it zest, which is a joyful aliveness? Was it hope? Was it gratitude? Was it forgiveness? Was it social intelligence? There's again, 24 of them. And so I have people connect to that. So one of the ways we help ourselves be resilient, is reminding ourselves of times where we've been resilient in the past that we often forget about and connecting to a sense of when I'm at my best and feel strongest, which values are showing up? What am I expressing? And there's an activity that you can do. We can put this in the show notes too. put a link to that assessment if you want. It's free. If you have people take it, there's been some research done that's written about in the book, The Upside of Stress by Dr. Kelly McGonigal out of Stanford. One of the things that they found is that when people write about one of their values for 10 minutes, they write about, here's a way that I express this value. Here's how it shows up for me. Here's how I live this out. Doing that exercise for 10 minutes, I've done this, especially with college students, has actually longer term impact on their sense of resilience and well-being, a sense of self-efficacy, of a can-do attitude, and a sense of self-esteem. Just connecting with your own strengths and values is another powerful way to get yourself unstuck, to remind yourself of, no, I've been through difficult things before, and I made it through, and I might need to remind myself of that. It's kind of like an internal boost of confidence, kind of. Yes, it is. I have a question. So the whole resilience thing, I would see that coming in a lot to maybe a lot of new people that are just starting their careers out. I know, especially when I started, we talk about it a lot on the show is imposter syndrome. You feel like you don't belong there. You feel like you're not ready. You're like, what am I doing here? Everybody in the room has 10 times more experience than I do. And I would think resilience would come huge under that aspect. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's something that takes a bit of time for us to develop. I mean, I'm probably more resilient than most people that are 36 because I've chosen to do the work to really look into how can I develop this? I've had an intentional desire to develop this capacity. There may be people that are 75 years old that don't have a ton of resilience because they haven't really chosen to be, to your point, Matt, kind of introspective and do some of this work. So I think one, self-doubt comes up across generations. I know some people will say that as they get older, they care less about <laughs> what other people think. And so they're not as consumed by it. But we're seeing now and people holding on to institutional knowledge at companies, right? Where they're like, I want to feel valuable. And if I give away all the things I know, then I'm going to not have any worth or value here. They're doubting themselves. And so I'm going to hold on to that and not tell these young people all of the ins and outs and secrets of what I know that's helped me to be successful here. So self-doubt continues to show up. I think resilience is a lifelong capacity because we're going to continue to face things that are adverse. The older you get, the more you're likely to encounter death among the people that are in your life, right? Like your friends or family members or your peers, you're more likely to experience loss. You're more likely to run into physical challenges the longer you're on the planet. So I think it's a capacity that the sooner we start developing it, the stronger that we can grow it so that as we continue and progress in our lives, we're going to be better equipped. And it's not to say that we don't get knocked down. We get knocked down and we can still get angry and go through denial and shock and sadness. Having a sense of resilience means that when we go through something difficult, our entire foundation isn't completely shaken. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. Yeah. Do, do you think that in kind of saying somebody that is in the workplace and they want to build their resilience up, would you say that finding a good mentor is probably a good way to help that process and down that path? I think absolutely. I mean, we were talking when I was doing this session for this group of attorneys this week, one of the things we had them share as we were talking about the session on resilience, we had them talk about what is it about practicing law that is particularly purposeful? And maybe think about this as I'm asking, I might tee you up and see if there's anything you want to share on this, Matt. <laughs> Any of you think about your profession that you're in. What is it about this profession that is particularly purposeful, meaningful, or fulfilling for you? And what impact do you hope to have on the world as a result of practicing this work? So we got these young attorneys and some other folks that have been in the profession for 20, 25 years, having those conversations in small groups with each other. So I send them in breakouts. And when we come back, we invite anyone who wants to open up to share 
And it was really interesting hearing the story of someone who was a boomerang employee. She'd been there for years. She left thinking the grass would be greener. She came back and now she's about to celebrate 10 years at the company. There's also research in the book about the upside of stress about this for college students when they come in as freshmen and they're like, I have no idea what I'm doing. Feel like a total imposter. Who the heck am I? When they hear stories of seniors telling them about the stuff that they've endured and gotten through, they're like, oh, okay. Feeling like I don't fit in here is normal. Feeling like I don't belong is a normal experience. When our experiences that we think are so unique get normalized, we start to feel less anxious, like almost instantly. And so having a mentor that's willing to be honest about their struggles is really helpful for anyone because then we can say, oh gosh, you went through this too? Oh, all right. So when I face that, I know I can come to you because you've been in it and you're still here. Yeah, totally. And they can also help you dodge some of the mistakes that they made and you can navigate the career path better. A hundred percent. Does anything come up for any of you on, I'm putting you on the spot on this, does anything come up for you when you think of like an experience you've had that you learned something from in the past that maybe you'd forgotten about that was an experience of resilience or something that you think of what makes the work that you do feel purposeful or fulfilling? I'll be transparent. Lee knows this pretty well, but my first year of marriage was a shit show. My wedding was one of the most drama-filled weddings in the history MTV of weddings. MTV status. MTV uh, VH1 status. So <laughs> it's amazing. I come from a big family. My wife comes from a big family. Just imagine putting two big families together and it doesn't go well. Bridesmaids wanted to throw down <laughs> against each other at the wedding. Yeah, editor, edit that out. Uh, <laughs> anyways, I bring that up because we I didn't think we were going to make it through the first year. It was that bad. We're almost at year 10 now. Together, we're like, we got through that shit. We can get through pretty much anything. That's what stood out for me. And I think you speaking on it just really highlights it. I think 100% agree with you. That's awesome. And it's a celebration, you know? It is. Next year, 10 years. You guys have made something amazing. Started off really probably challenging, but man, look at you guys now. It's it's an amazing thing you guys have created together. For myself, actually, it's probably most recent in this last year, right before COVID is probably when I had one of my most challenging experiences is because the company I was at for seven years got bought out, new company came on, wanted me to come with them, gave me this deal. It was a pretty lucrative deal that I could have said, all right, I'll take that deal and I'll basically be with you guys forever. You know, it was kind of one of those deals. There was a cookie there and the cookie was a long-term cookie and there was no options getting out. I basically said, well man, I got to work for another 40 years. I don't know if I can take that cookie. And so I walked. Week after I walked, COVID hits the US. Everything gets locked down. Market's tanking. And then ultimately, I'm freaking out because I'm like, wow, what's going to happen to my business? Should I have taken that deal? Like, did I make a major mistake? All those things went through my head. And I generally am someone that don't second guess myself. If I make a decision, I stick with it. I'm pretty confident. This was like the one time in my life where I was second guessing my decisions and I worked through it. I basically said, you know what? I have a job right now. I have to make sure my clients are happy, that they feel like they're being taken care of. And if I do that, my clients will come with me on this transition. And I did that. I was literally working to a point where I thought I would die. I worked so hard that I felt like my heart was going to give out. And it was crazy for like probably three months. Things got better from that point on and it's worked out amazing. Now I can look back on it. It's literally the best decision I ever made in my life because there was other opportunities that came with that. My business ended up taking off and having a banner year, but I didn't see that at that time. And when that happened, I was shitting, (laughs) shitting bricks. Like it was scary (laughs) because it's like someone puts this amazing or like very advantageous opportunity in front of you. And you basically say, no, like, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to bet on me. And then COVID. And then you're like, wow, maybe I shouldn't have done that. So that's my experience. Wow. You started with turning down a cookie. That's rare for you. Oh, it's <laughs> rare. Oh, we're going to get fat jokes now. Going back to Rachel's question. Yes, Rachel, that's our experiences with resilience. Hey, Rachel, you mentioned unmuting yourself earlier. And then there was something specific like, on confidence and courage. I think a lot of people, including myself, struggle with this in the workplace, Mm -hmm. is really being that confident person, having the courage to stand up. How do you bring that out in people? So one, I think that confidence is the byproduct of action. So people think, how do you get confident? Like, 
you do shit when you're really scared and then you just keep doing it. Honestly, that's at its core. (laughs) The most foundational thing is that you're scared and you move forward anyway. Being guided by a really strong sense of purpose can be motivating for people. So I think a lot of times we can disconnect from a sense of purpose. Why am I doing this? Why should I speak up? Why does it really matter to me? And we might get caught up in the drama of it as opposed to thinking, well, I'll give you an example of something that happened when I was in high school. I was a sophomore in high school, went to an all girls high school. We had a summer reading program that everybody complained about all the time. We had to read like 3000 pages in the summer, got tested when we came back, made people hate reading. And I loved reading growing up. I got really annoyed at this. And I was like, well, everyone complains about it. No one does anything about it. And so when I was 15, I wrote a proposal to the heads of the English and history departments about why we needed to change the program. (laughs) And I sat down with them and I said, here's what I think we need to do. They actually made some pretty fundamental changes to the program. And so I learned at a young age, and part of it was coming from a home where my parents are both entrepreneurs. My dad is a management consultant. My mother's a financial planner. So I grew up in an environment where I saw people taking ownership of their lives. And I realized that for a lot of people, that's not a common experience. I know looking back now that part of how I've become who I am is that I saw my parents advocating for things growing up. And I assumed it was normal to do that. Now, on the flip side, I was speaking up about that, but at the same time, I was struggling with perhaps the emotional pain. My parents went through a lot of challenges when I was about five years old. And they came from really difficult circumstances. Both of them came from challenging family situations. When I was growing up, I was sort of internalizing the stress and the tension of them moving out and getting separated briefly. And my brother was like the exploding bomb who like did everything that you're not supposed to do. And he got attention for basically acting out. And I just decided I'm going to have it together all the time. So I learned at a very, very young age, I made a decision internally of I'm going to have it together all the time. So even though I was advocating for myself in school, which was a place I always felt confident, but I always felt a sense of strength in an academic setting because it was one of the few places I really felt like I fit in and that I had figured out what my place was in that. I hadn't really figured out my place in my role in my family. I never felt like I fit in socially with my peers growing up, but I felt like school was the thing I got and could control. So anything related to school, I always had a sense of confidence about. But when it came to like my emotional challenges, I was dealing with a lot and I internalized it by developing 10 years of digestive issues as an adult. I had acid reflux for a decade as an adult that I took medication for. I had chronic ear, nose, and throat infections from the time I was four until I was maybe 16, 17 with half a dozen surgeries along the way. My body was finding some way to store all of the stress that I was carrying, the emotional and mental stress and tension that I was carrying that I wasn't releasing in any healthy way. As much as I was unmuting myself to advocate in a place where I felt safe and confident, because I had, my friend Teresa refers to as stacking proof. I had enough proof stacked over time that school was a place where I felt like you can behave this way and you will be rewarded. But in the other areas of my life, I did not have that same level of confidence. So I think it's important to recognize we can be confident in one area of our lives and be really not confident in another area. And it takes practice, like going to therapy consistently or having difficult conversations with people where you're sharing what you're feeling Or where you're speaking up in a meeting and saying, hey, what if we tried this when you'd normally sit on your hands and just think it and not say it? So it's uncomfortable. I think part of it, people don't want to be in discomfort, so they're not willing to try. And you don't get more confident by thinking about it 50 more times. That may or may not be helpful. I don't know. No, it's 100% helpful. I think the more organizations can leverage that type of thinking, the better the employees are going to be because you're going to actually get their true thoughts and their impact is going to be like exponentially better, I think. Well, here's a way to address it now. So I've seen this happen in virtual, especially people are like, we're so disconnected. People aren't seeing each other. How do we get ideas shared? How do we connect? What I found to be fascinating in the virtual space is how much more readily you can crowdsource collective wisdom in ways that are harder to do when people are spread out in an office or spread out across 30 offices or five offices even. So virtually, I'll do a lot of design thinking type sessions where when people are struggling with connection, I'll bring them into an experience together. There might be 75 people in the room, the Zoom room. And then I invite them. I did this, I've done this with a group of college students, HR professionals, all sorts of different kinds of people. Well, I invite them to answer a how might we question. How might we question is a possibilities question and it's used in design thinking. So how might we be creative or innovative or resourceful and how we connect with and engage with each other in the next three to six months? And then you invite people to reflect, to play some music, invite people to reflect on that individually. 
And then they go into breakout rooms and they talk And there are five or six people that are in there for about 25, 30 minutes. And you get people into a pattern. You set the expectation. Each person's going to have about two or three minutes to share their thoughts. We'll capture everybody's thoughts and we'll go back through and say, all right, what are our top three most energizing ideas that we heard in this conversation? So you actually bring more voices in. Too many companies aren't willing to ask their own people for solutions to the company's problems. So I'm often brought in to facilitate that because (laughs) they're not willing to do it themselves. And so I was trained as a facilitator. All I'm doing is asking generative questions that open up and unlock the wisdom that everyone already has. Do you think people are more willing to speak with you because you're brought in internally from the company? So do you think that you kind of excel at that role because you don't have that direct employment with the company? I'll answer that question in two ways. One, I think because they're not necessarily coming to me individually, they're coming in community. So they're always coming to me in those larger group settings. I think just me asking the types of questions that they've never been asked before unleashes a bit of creativity in them. But on the flip side, I had a situation with a professional services firm two weeks ago where it was a session on resilience, on resetting mindset, talking about all that fun brain neuroscience of anxiety stuff. And I asked a question. I had them go into breakout rooms and talk about what's one thing you've done to adapt professionally or personally in the past year that makes you most proud. So that people get to connect to a moment of strength, right? So Sergio talking about that connection to strength is really empowering. And so I had them connect to that. They go into small groups and talk, and then I bring them back and I invite, I'll never call anybody out. I invite anyone to open up about what they want to share. And the first person who shared referenced a chart that I had put in the beginning. We talked at the beginning of this conversation about that wave of the grieving process. And I had walked through each step, including the place about depression. And so she raised her hand. She said in front of her peers, that was really helpful just to be talking to other people. I realized that I think I'm in that dot where that depression is. Acknowledged just almost 70 of her coworkers, which no one saw coming. And then the chat was just flooded. People were like encouraging her and like, we're here for you. And, and oh my goodness, let me know if I can do anything to help. And then the HR team who's often who I'm working with connected with me afterwards and said, several people in the company have reached out to us to ask, what are we doing to support that person? Because they're concerned. The problem is most people, they don't have an outlet. And most companies, people are struggling in silence because they don't have an outlet. So I'm seeing people open up about depression. People are opening up about loss. People are sometimes in tears in these sessions. And I'm working with engineering firms, law firms, accounting firms, scientific researchers, healthcare, education. And it's like, these are human experiences. We sometimes dismiss or discount because we're like, oh, those type of people don't talk about this. No, if you ask the right kind of question and you create a safe space, people are more likely to open up and we're just not creating enough safe spaces for people to have these conversations in meaningful ways right now. And that's why, that's my purpose, why I do what I do. And it sounds like some people might not even totally be aware that they're in this grief or depression stage and like actually getting that self-awareness can lead them to taking steps to fix it. Yes. Actually, Matt, you saying that a lot of people have said that I didn't realize I was, they didn't even know this is a thing or like, I didn't even know there was a process to grieving. I didn't even know that I was grieving. I didn't even identify that what I've been experiencing in the past year has been grief, but it has been. I mean, when so much has been disrupted, we've all grieved the loss of something in the past year, multiple for many people. And those feelings kind of almost sounds like some of them just become normal to them, some kind of normalcy brought to them. And that's why they're not able to have that self-awareness and realize where they really are. Or there's a numbing. There's a numbing of like, it is too painful. My husband and I were watching the movie, The Way Back, that basketball movie with Ben Affleck back in like April, a month into COVID. And there was a scene in the movie, spoiler alert, where (laughs) they're like lifting up the champion player at the end, everyone rushes the court. And all of a sudden it seemingly came out of nowhere. This was like a week before the accident. My eyes started welling with tears. I started to feel really sad and I started to cry. And I was like, I mean, you know, Ben Affleck's a good actor and everything, but I'm not sure why I'm being so stirred up by this movie. I sat with it, which is hard and uncomfortable. And I realized, I ended up writing a blog post about it, which we could also share in the show notes if you want. It's give yourself permission to be sad. It's okay to be sad. And I realized I'm very extroverted. I was missing people. I was like, when are we going to be able to be that close without fear again? It started to hit me the gravity of what was going on and how much I missed people. And so instead of dismissing it, which a lot of us tend to do, especially with tears in our society, I think a lot of times we particularly among men are like, you just suck it up and like pull it together or whatever. 
which sucks. That's changing. That toxic masculinity is changing. Thank goodness. But it's like, gotta give yourself permission to feel what you're feeling. And emotions are transitory states. We think that once we activate it, we're going to stay there forever. And sometimes we stay there longer than we want to. And that's part of the process, but that's where reaching out to other people or getting support or reminding ourselves of strength or even discharging stress by changing your physiology, by moving your body, by running, kickboxing, dancing, by, by walking, by listening to a song. There's little things you can do in the moment by watching something that makes you laugh. You can do these little things to shift your, you know, Tony Robbins type stuff, right? Like, like shift your state in the moment. But then ultimately you might just have to let yourself go through the pain of the uncomfortable process and acknowledge to yourself that that's what it is. Like name it, name what you're feeling. That makes it more bearable if we can name it. I think what you said about having an outlet, some way to release it is just huge. Like you can't undervalue that at all. I think everybody needs that. Yes. And a lot of people have lost their outlet. Like my outlet was I'd go meet my buddies for happy hour. My outlet was playing pickup, whatever. Or my outlet, what? So a lot of people have lost what their outlet was and haven't replaced it. And so then the outlet comes just like everybody else. I get judgment from Netflix. Are you still watching? I'm like, shut up. Yes, I'm still watching. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I've watched more TV than normal, but part of this is giving yourself grace. My outlet was running. Like my husband and I would go like, I'm terrible at basketball. We'd go like shoot hoops at the park near our house. I couldn't do it. When the accident happened, I suddenly, all the other outlets I had were taken away And that was a really hard part. I had to grieve that. I had to grieve, like, guess you're just going to have to sing now because I love singing. And like, that became basically one of my only outlets or watching Schitt's Creek, watching something that made me laugh. Like that became an outlet for me because I needed something. (laughs) Saw that on your bio. I was going to ask you, like, can you sing? Are you, so you're a singer. I'm a singer. Yeah. Can we hear something? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I was kidding. No, let's do it. So I feel like one of the songs, and I've incorporated this more in the work that I do, because I find that it also adds a bit of levity. Talking about grief and talking about resetting mindset and acknowledging and giving yourself permission to feel like these are heavy things that most people are not used to talking about. So I also like to sort of combine it with things that add a bit of lightness. And so for instance, one of my favorite songs that I've been singing lately in these workshops around getting through difficult things is a Destiny's Child song I know y'all are familiar with. So I'll sing just a little snippet of it. Child, <laughs> yeah. Let's throw it Okay. Back. I'm a survivor. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to stop. I'm a work harder. I'm a survivor. I'm going to make it. I will survive. Keep on surviving. So like that would be something. Dang, I would- you are a singer. That was amazing. <laughs> you got Thanks. pipes. Beyonce on the Free Retiree okay. Show. So that's my outlet. And I would sing to people too. Like, you know, sometimes Serge, when you're sharing your story, I would imagine that anyone listening that's going through a difficult thing in their marriage would be like, all right, yeah, if I've made it through something difficult, then I can make it through something difficult in the future. So sometimes we may not be able to connect with our own sense of resilience, but sometimes we can connect to somebody else's story and find hope in somebody else's story as a way to get activated. That's why I share my story the way that I do. Cause I'm like, look, you did not get hit by a truck. You had your own version of getting hit by a truck. And I'm not here to judge and compare and say mine was any worse than yours, but just giving that acknowledgement. And then perhaps me sharing this story about going through grief and letting yourself feel and coming to a place of making meaning and, and allowing people to support and love and care for you. Like maybe there's one thing in there that someone hears that makes them realize I could do that. I could reach out to that person that I haven't reached out to that would really want to know if I were struggling or somebody gave me the name of a therapist and and I haven't reached out, but maybe this is the catalyst. So I often see myself as a catalyst to like awakens and activates people. That's what I love to do. I like your approach because it's not just all smiles and rainbows. It seems like you're pretty authentic and you share your truth. It's not just the typical, everything's perfect. But I've seen some of your LinkedIn posts and it's like, everyone's not their social media perfect profile. There's lots of things going on underneath. So I think your approach is amazing. I think everybody should reach out to you. It's great. Thank you. Rachel, I know a common thread in what you've been talking about today is being able to accept and ask for help. Mm-hmm. I think as you alluded to before, a lot of us, especially that are men, right? We don't like asking for help. We don't want to seem as weak or needy. What would mm-hmm. you say to the people that have that mindset that look at asking for help? accepting help is coming from a lesser position. 
I have a couple of thoughts about that. I feel very strongly about this topic. One I would say is when you do not give somebody else the opportunity to support or give to you or help you, you are robbing them of an experience of the joy of what it is to do that. So think about a time, every single one of you, I'm sure could think of a situation where you've given help, support, kindness, love, encouragement to somebody else. And you saw the positive impact that it had. And you know how good that feels to give to somebody else in that way. And for whatever reason, we decide that everybody else but us deserves that. So some of it's like a self-worth thing. Some of it's an ego thing. The interesting thing that most people don't realize is that when you ask for help, you give somebody else the ability to shine. So even in the workplace, there was a study that Brene Brown writes about in the book, Dare to Lead, where they surveyed a thousand leaders and they asked them what behavior of your people contributes most to your ability to trust them. The number one thing they said more than anything else was when they asked for help, because asking for help demonstrates an awareness of your capacity and capabilities and where perhaps there's a gap. So people that are totally narcissistic, arrogant, whatever, right? When people show up that way, I'm fine. I've got it all. I've got it together. It's great. Like you don't give anyone else the opportunity to be needed. And every human being needs to feel needed. And if we're the people that have it together all the time, I don't need it. I'm good. I'm fine. I've got it. How I lived my life for like a solid 32 years. We don't realize it, but it actually feels very lonely to be in that place. Maybe it's a protective mechanism. Maybe it's like, if I have to need people, then I'm going to be obligated to them back. And so I don't want to have to be obligated back. Or if I need people, they're going to see me as needy. It's a story that we're telling ourselves. So it's like even just taking a pause and saying for everyone that feels that way, the story I'm telling myself about needing help is, and if you have a thought that comes to mind, what might be some of the things, I mean, you mentioned, right? That people will think I'm incompetent, that people will think I'm inadequate, people think I'm weak. What are the other reasons people might say of the story I'm telling myself about what it means to need help? Yeah, I think it's just mainly the uh, feeling we coming in a position of like less than or like, you don't want to burden somebody either. Everybody has something going on, mm-hmm. right? I think those those are some of the things that come to mind. I think also people, you know, if it's in the role of an employee, employer situation, and you go and have to ask questions, they're going to think, hey, they're not going to think I'm right for this job. You know, sure. and, and I think that's a huge fear that people have. Is, Great point. Yeah, I think it's like the, one of the main things that people don't want to go ask for help because they're going to be like, oh, wow, they're going to think I'm not the right person. And it couldn't be more wrong, I think, in most things. It's like, I think if you show that and you want to learn and that desire to get better, in my eyes, I'd see it as a strength rather than a weakness. And to your point, Matt, I think what can help people with that, elephant on the table. I'm such an advocate of surgery saying about speaking truth, calling out what it is, going to someone and say, hey, I really like to be somebody that has it all together all the time. This requires vulnerability, but vulnerability is one of the most courageous things that you can show up with. And when we show up with vulnerability, other people generally, unless they're like a sociopath, feel compassion and empathy for us. When we're willing to be vulnerable and we don't realize this, we unlock something, we open up something in another person. And so when we say, hey, look, I don't like to be somebody who really needs people. (laughs) I don't like to have to ask for help. I like to feel like I have it together all the time. Any version of that, you have to say all of that, but like some version of how are you feeling? Like, I'm afraid that if I ask you for help, you're going to think I don't know what I'm doing. But the reality is I just want to get so good at what I'm doing that you can see me as like your most reliable person. But right now I'm feeling stuck. And I know that you'd probably want me to come to you if you knew that I was feeling stuck. I cannot think of a single decent, reasonable human being in charge of that person that would react with anything other than support. Some people aren't reasonable. You may not want to work with them, but any reasonable human being would respond to that with probably a desire to say, how can I help you? You know, so the the vulnerability piece is huge. You mentioned Brene Brown earlier. I read a book, I think last year, it was all about vulnerability and how it can unlock relationships. If you're vulnerable early with people, like it just builds that trust and rapport like right away. So I love that. Yes. Well, I think as being a manager and whatever, Sergio, you probably experienced this too. If you're more real, you're more vulnerable with your employees, they're going to in turn be more real with you and you're just going to establish a better relationship. For anybody who does manage right now, this may be helpful. The fourth Gallup has done research over the past 10 years about what followers need most from leaders in times of crisis. And they found there's four things they need. They need trust, compassion, stability, and hope. One of the most effective ways for leaders to build trust and likability is to ask for feedback and then act on it. So as a leader, this requires vulnerability. Hey, what am I doing particularly well in our relationship that's making this work? Hey, is there anything I could be doing differently that would make this relationship even better? 
most people are not ever expecting a superior to ask them that question. And they're afraid there's an ulterior motive. So you might need to call it out and be like, look, I get that you might be afraid to tell me this, but I really want to know how to optimize our relationship because I want this to just be like a home run as often as it can be. And if there's anything I'm doing or not doing, that's getting in the way of that. I want to know because I actually do want to grow and improve. And I'm happy to give you the same kind of feedback. So when you create this sense of almost like equality in that regard of being willing to ask for feedback, being open to it, the power is asking for and acting on. Most people ask for feedback and they're like, meh, not going to do that. And then that's how you break trust and compromise integrity in a relationship. So asking for feedback and acting on it is a really powerful thing to do. And as a leader, going to your people and ask them a simple question, how can I best support you right now? Is there anything I could be doing differently to better support you personally or professionally so that you can do your best work here? Most people are not asking those questions. No, it's simple, but it's extremely powerful. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for coming on our show today. You've given us some amazing value, some amazing insight. If people want to learn more about what you do and reach out for help to Rachel, how can they do that? My website is unmutedlife.com. So that's a good place to go to learn more about the different topics I cover, blog posts I've done, podcast episodes I've been on. And then I'm most social platforms. I'm most active on LinkedIn get more singing and other things on LinkedIn and just insights like what we talked about today. And I'm also on Instagram at unmuted life. And then I'm beginning to dabble in clubhouse. So I'm at Rachel Druck on clubhouse. Yeah. If anyone wants to do any rooms or any of the topics you've heard today, hit me up. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to the free retiree show. So long for now. Securities offered through Securities America Incorporated, member FINRA, www.finra.org, SIPC, www.sipc.org, a separate entity. Lee Michael Murphy is licensed with the California Department of Insurance, license 0H18660. Lee Michael Murphy is a investment advisor representative with Securities America Advisors, a registered investment advisor. The free retiree, Securities America Advisors, and Securities America Incorporated are separate entities. Career Advisor Sergio Patterson, Attorney Matt McElroy are not affiliated with Securities America Advisors or Securities America Incorporated. Securities America Advisors, Securities America Incorporated, and its representatives do not provide tax or legal advice. Therefore, it's important to coordinate with your tax or legal advisor regarding your specific situation. The content heard in this podcast is not intended to be tax, investment, or legal advice and is intended as general guidance only. You should contact your own tax advisor, financial advisor, or attorney to answer questions about your specific situation or needs before acting upon this information. Third-party sourced information or comments are not verified, may not be accurate, and are not necessarily representative of all client or audience experience. A portion of this event was paid by a third party. The opinions of career advisor Sergio Patterson do not reflect the opinions of Facebook, Inc., The opinions of attorney Matt McGorry do not reflect the opinions of Castaneda and company.